Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. So if you want a durable solution, a one that lasts, you do include the most people involved to come up with it. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Today, I'm interviewing Nisha Anand. She is a boundary buster, common ground creator, nonviolent culture creator, outside of the box experimenter, and national leader for social and racial justice. Once a grassroots activist arrested in Burma for pro-democracy demonstrations, Nisha is known today as a leader in cultivating unlikely and unconventional partnerships to create change. As Dream.org CEO, Nisha guides a team of storytellers, organizers, and policy experts working on some of society's toughest problems to create a better future for us all. In this episode, we talk about Nisha's approach to bipartisanship and her focus on inclusive legislation that brings unlikely allies together. We are going to talk about how to effectively navigate bipartisanship while advancing transformative agendas and the pushback you might receive from funders or folks who have a strong resistance to working across belief areas and identities. We also discuss strategic ways to turn fundraising into a potent organizing strategy and how to confidently address the money talk hurdle in your fundraising endeavors. There is so much polarization in our world today, and Nisha represents a really refreshing approach to think about how we work together. There's so much in here for community leaders, organizers, and fundraisers, so let's dive in so you can meet Nisha. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Nisha Anand. Nisha, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you for having me on the show. Great way to start my work week. (laughs) I'm so excited to be talking to you today and learning more about your incredible career and the work that you've done. Why don't we start with you just sharing with everybody a little bit about you, your journey, and what brings you to our conversation today? Sure. I'm Nisha Anand. I'm the CEO at dream.org. And I have been on a long journey to being here as the CEO early on my career as a young activist, a bit of a hellraiser on the street. I was really active in different protest movements. I've been arrested a dozen times. If you had asked me, would I ever be the CEO of a large national nonprofit organization? I'm sure I would have said absolutely not. It's one of those jobs like a principal. You get all the blame for things that go wrong and not a lot of the glory when things go right. And I didn't think that that was a trajectory for me. But after years of working in the nonprofit sector and most of my career as a development professional in the fundraising world, I found myself wanting to take on more and more and play a bigger game and make a bigger impact. And one of the things I actually love doing is managing people and In nonprofit world, I mean, in every job, a lot of it is about the people. And I've found that fit. So dream.org is a pretty remarkable organization. We work on criminal justice reform and climate justice reform. A lot of what we do, if you look and say, what are they doing on a day-to-day basis? We're passing bills and laws. But what we do, what I think makes us really unique is that above everything else, we believe that we have to decrease polarization while we're solving the greatest problems. We actually feel that problems can't be solved if it further divides people. So all of our legislation is bipartisan. We draw the biggest table possible when we're trying to think of solutions. That means we make sure to bring grassroots people on the ground facing the difficult challenges to the table with venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, builders of infrastructure in middle America, we bring together unlikely allies so that we can solve those big giant problems and show people it's possible. It's possible to make change and win some big progressive victories without having to alienate hate and further divide the country. 
when I was reading about your bio and your work, I love reading about that concept of making a radical inclusivity and making the table as big as possible. And I'm really curious about what you just said, which I'm probably going to misquote, which is the idea that moving something forward if it creates more division is actually not the progress we're looking for. So that seems very contradictory to how most people are operating these days. So can you just talk to me a little bit about what's rooted behind that and the orientation around that? Yeah, I remember learning about movements in history and how problematic some of the biggest victories we know that we look back on and we think about the fight against colonialism and independence around the world. And oftentimes women were told their issues, which were also important and around the same time, women's issues were coming up internationally, that should take a back seat to nationalism. And so in fact, recreated new nation states who just got freedom and women were still abused second-class citizens. They were told to wait. We look at the history in this country for women's rights and the right to vote and race And the fight around civil rights was happening around the same time. And Black women were told, wait, we got to fight for this thing first. And so it wasn't a whole victory. And I think that understanding that, which later became the talk of intersectionality and how all of our issues are intertwined, that really feeds my thinking a little bit that in fact, progress, if we talk about ourselves as progressives, which we do, we never hide the fact that we come from the left, that we are progressives. But for me, progress does not mean my rights trampling on your rights. In fact, it never has. I was a young immigrant kid who always felt left out and left behind. And so I don't view progress as a way that leaves anyone else behind. No matter what set of privileges, circumstances they come into the table with, I want it to be better for everybody. When I think about freedom and justice for all, I really do mean for all. And to me, it's a little inconsistent to say, I like diversity, or there's only a certain type of diversity I like. And we've done a great job on the left of drawing our circles bigger and bigger to include people who have been historically left out, marginalized, left behind, never thought of in the solutions we create. We've done a great job to make sure we're inclusive of that. But that for some reason, we want to then exclude the people who've already made it. And we are all suffering. Our suffering might not be equal, but we all suffer under the social ills of today. So that's big for me. Consistency. I think it's consistent. I really appreciate that. I saw a post recently, somebody quote from somebody who was saying like, if my liberation at your expense is just another form of capitalism. And I've been sitting with that a lot recently around how we ensure that however we're fighting for freedom and rights is, you know, what are the downstream effects? Who is being left out of that conversation? Whose expense is it at? And so I really like the way that you're leading pieces of that conversation. I'm curious, and maybe I'm going for the the gut too soon here, but as somebody who identifies as very progressive myself, and seeing a lot of the conversations that happen in the progressive space, there can be a lot of self-righteousness in terms of progressive agendas. And to the point that is, I think to what you're saying, exclusionary. It doesn't open space for there to be bipartisan conversation or progress. And I'm imagining you on the front lines of the protests that you are getting arrested in. And I know some of the ones that I have found myself in over the years. And there can be that righteous energy in those moments. How do we navigate that space? How do we navigate the binary activism that sometimes feels like is required to move things forward to this more gray bipartisan space? If it was an easy solution, we would have done it. It's just that nuance has never been seen as sexy. Being gray or being in the middle has never been something that entices folks. It's not the thing that's like, yay, let's all, it hasn't been exciting in history. So this is what I think about all the time. How do we make that nuance the thing that people want to get involved with? The thing is, is we understand it on a day-to-day level. We live in nuance on a day-to-day level. All of us do that. When we're ordering a pizza, I don't say, hey, I'm vegetarian. And you say, I'm meat. And then you force me to eat meat. 
that's not how we order a pizza. We either compromise with like, oh, we both like mushrooms or we split it half and half. Like we come up with something. And so we're used to doing it every day, solving problems in this way. And in fact, when you're polling people, they say that in their lives, they can live with a lot of gray area. They can live with friends whose beliefs are a little bit different because they know the person, they like the person. You even have in my family, for instance, my father is a Republican and he loves to talk politics all the time. And I love him. And so we actually know it's possible to do that as well. We just somehow, you get more likes and you score more points when you take the extreme poll. That's never worked. It's necessary sometimes, absolutely, in the ecosystem of social change. You have to have every possible vision of progressive on the table to move people. But in terms of what's actually made change, and like I said, I've been on every part of that ecosystem of the left during my life. When I've actually seen the most change at scale, it works the most inclusive it is. It has never worked in history to, this is the story of wars, and students of history will see this, is that if you bring down the faction with violence, they will come back and bring you down with violence. That is history. That's how it's always been. And so if you want a durable solution, a one that lasts, you do include the most people involved to come up with it. And I have blind spots, and we don't like to admit that. But all of us do. We have these areas that we just don't know because of who we are. If I was going to design a climate solution and I live in California, I would include things about droughts, about wildfires, probably about electric vehicles because they're all over here. But that's not all we need in a great climate bill. You go to the middle of the country where farmers are on the front lines. They have a completely different set of needs and wants. And I don't know those unless I talk to them. So our Republican partners, and we work with a lot of Republicans, they can always count on me and count on us to point out where they are possibly not thinking of equity, where they aren't thinking of the good of the whole community. And they depend on us for that. Like, have you thought about how this might impact this group? That's not something a lot of my conservative partners are good at seeing. But they point out to me when I come up with a solution, they're like, have you thought about this, how this might hurt someone's individual liberty, their individual pursuit of happiness, their life trajectory might be completely transformed from this. I don't think about that. That's just not who I am. It's not something I've valued as much. It's not a bad value. It's just my blind spot. And so we need each other. And I would like more people to embrace that. They know that in their lives. They just seem to feel like it's impossible to do that in politics. And it's not nice, you know, like you get shamed. You don't get enough likes. My message is usually people think it's a little too kumbaya and let's all get along. And they don't think it's quite radical. But I actually think it's one of the most radical things you can do is making that stand for freedom for everybody. I'm curious, like for you on a very like personal level, like I can imagine working with peers of yours where you don't see eye to eye on issues that sometimes they take actions that feel disappointing to you or are frustrating, whether or not it's on an issue you're working with them particularly around, but then perhaps how they vote on something different that conflicts with your ideology. What is some like self-coaching you do with yourself in those moments to sort of stay the course on partnership and not fall into some of those? I think a lot about, and I've studied a lot, the science of connection and what makes us feel connected and a sense of belonging. And I think a lot about how our nervous systems co-regulate and dysregulate. And a lot of times when there is like a, an ideological rift, people withdraw, either because they don't feel personally safe necessarily in the relationship anymore, or there's been some level of sort of like trust and a lack of assurance that's been created there. And so people like emotionally withdraw from the relationship, they create boundaries and space, and we lose our sense of connection in those moments. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you cultivate a very intentional mindset around staying in connection, even when things get uncomfortable. And even when not everything feels aligned, and perhaps always completely safe in your body and in your mind. And so I'm just curious, some of your personal practices for staying in that space. 
Yeah. I mean, you're so right. Part of the reason that my dad and I can fight so much about politics is the trust is there. The love is there. I know our relationship will be fine after we yell at each other, all sorts of horrible things about politics that don't impact us. So I think you're really right. Trust is the most important. And I say love because for me and who I am, there has to be love and connection to all of humanity, all the different types of humanity to do what I do. I didn't get into the nonprofit sector to make money. You get in it. I think a lot of us that are in this work, it's because we've always been the people who care too much, who really want to do something that impacts the world. So I think being guided by love is an important value for anyone on the left. I do this because I love people who have been hurt, who have been left out, who have been left behind. Like that love has to stay front and center. And in fact, a lot of the hate that we've gotten as an organization has been when we come out with these big bipartisan bills, because exactly what you said, they don't include everything. And I can be honest, they do not include everything I want. Our biggest success to date was a federal bill called the First Step Act, which we started working on during the Obama administration. But when Trump became president, there was this question that was asked, like, should we still work on it now that there are all these Republicans and we're not going to get all the things that we want? And this is a criminal justice reform bill, one that had a lot of bipartisan support even back in the Obama administration. We just couldn't get it through. And the thing that we had to ask ourselves, every single one of us at the organization, what would the people inside prison want us to do? Would they want us to stop pushing for this reform right now because the optics weren't great or because we couldn't get everything that they wanted? Should Do they want to stay in prison for another four or eight years? It could have been eight years at that time, just so we can maybe get one or two more things that we like. And the answer is no. And so for me, the mental thing that I always have to remember is who am I fighting for? What am I fighting for? This is that mission first mentality that has to be apparent in all parts of your organization. And we pushed and the left hated it. And there are parts of the bill that a lot of us hated. But since we passed that with 89 senators signing yes in a Republican controlled Senate, we got 89 yeses. 20,000 people have come home from that bill, from that one piece of legislation that we didn't give up. And we got a lot of attacks from the left and the right. It's kind of when you know you're probably doing it well. I look back on it and all of those arguments we had, I think that was one of my biggest learnings was that I had to do what was right for the people inside. And a few years later, 20,000 people who would not otherwise be home. And we called it the First Step Act because it's allowed us to do more and more and more after that. And the trust we built with those conservatives and the Republican partners, and mind you, at the end of the day, one person has to sign that bill. That is the president, which was Trump at that point. We had to work with a lot of people who we wouldn't work with on any other issue. And so the long answer to your question is keep the mission first, always in the front of your head. Who are you doing this for? And then I disappear. You know, if I can keep in mind, who am I doing this for and who am I influencing? Who am I trying to talk to? I'm always trying to bring more people in. Like I said, I want to have the biggest table. If I keep in mind the people I'm helping and the people I want to bring in, then I, my personal ego has to go away. There's just no room for it there, which I do. You can ask my family. Like I do have an ego that'll come out plenty of times when I want to get my way. But in general, that's my trick. Yeah, I love I love that. And I think that's such a helpful, just like a really honest way of sharing that like when it's working, working, it doesn't always feel like it's working. Or that when you're getting a lot of that pushback, like that's not a bad sign. And I think it can be so hard, especially being people who are oriented towards taking care of the people around them, people who find themselves in the nonprofit sector, which comes with a lot of people pleasing tendencies and wanting to create harmony in the environments that we're in when we then find ourselves in those moments of conflict or feeling like everybody's mad at us, it can be really hard to stay the course. And so I really appreciate you walking us through that. I'm curious, as the leader of this organization, and in a lot of your different leadership roles, fundraising has been a big piece of the puzzle. And I'm really curious to talk about this piece around 
nuance and fundraising, because a lot of fundraising that we see is very black and white. I am very personally against the like cringy, urgency, clickbait fundraising that is out there. And I've gotten a lot of pushback over the last few years around like, nobody has time for your nuance, Mallory. Like nobody has time for your fundraising email that's a sentence longer because you didn't just like throw out there some super black and white statement. Now, I have not found that to be true in my actual fundraising, right? It's been incredibly successful, but there are a lot of beliefs around people's attention is going down. We only have seven seconds of everybody's attention. And so we got to just throw it all out there and freak them out and give them that call to action so quickly. And so I'm curious, like, how has this piece around nuance played into how you've thought about fundraising? And yeah, just walk us through some of that. My mind is going in a million places right now because all of that's true in terms of fundraising science. That fundraising, I always think of it as both an art and a science, right? So the science of it says it should be this. This gets the best returns rate. This gets the most click. Very black and white. Use this sentence, this bold, this. And there are studies around that. And that's true for the most part. But what we also know is that the best fundraising is driven by relationships. It's both an organizing strategy and just a feeling that you create for somebody. And so, yeah, it's true. If I'm scrolling through Instagram, you have three seconds of my attention or whatever it is, unless the person I love shows up while I'm scrolling. Well, they get a lot more time. They get a lot more of my time. I'll watch the whole thing to an end. I'll click through all of their story because I love them. I care about them. I want to know what they're doing. And that's always been true for fundraising is that you want to be the organization. You want to be the cause that people care about. And one of the best ways to do that is when they feel they have a piece of ownership in your organization. So when they give that first $2, how do you then cultivate that long relationship? How do you meet them? How do you, that is always been true. And so for me, that's where nuance lives. It lives in that relationship building space that we have to get to know each other if we want to continue to do this work together. And doing that work together means a lot of things for a lot of people. But for some people, that just means giving money, giving regularly, giving monthly, giving big donations, giving bequests, whatever it is, that relationship, we have to get to know each other so that we can do that work. So I'd say nuance lives there. And the nuance I bring to the table, and I mentioned it earlier, is that folks can count on me to be exactly who I am when I sit down at the table. I am not going to compromise. I'm not going to be someone else just because I'm sitting down with Republican partners or Republican senator. When we do lobby days, I make sure I'm on the like Republican list because I want to do that. I want to share stories. I don't hide who I am. I couldn't if I tried. I'm pretty out there. And inviting other people to be exactly who they are when I meet with them that's what builds that relationship. And so for donors, it's the exact same thing. That nuance has to be there. I'm not going to hide who I am. I will not pretend to be a super lefty, lefty group that has no room for nuance just because this donor only funds in activist spaces that are that way. I will say, here's who I am. Nisha, I come from that. Here's the strategy our organization employs. Here's why I think your money should go to that strategy, why we need someone like you who's quite different or might coming from this other philosophy to also buy into this one because we're moving that change together. I don't want to hide who I am. And I, I think that that's always been the truism with fundraising, but folks want the quick fix and the quick dollar. And so they'll just see if they can follow a formula and get better results when what we know is the nuance actually is important. Okay, you said this word when you just started giving that explanation that I latched onto a little bit, which was you said fundraising as like an organizing strategy. And I want to double click on that because I think this is such an important point that you're making and something I believe so deeply that fundraising and the act of moving money towards accomplishing goals that we both want to see is a really important part of movement building and organizing. And we often inside our organizations, we're like, here are our programs and services. And then the fundraising is like over here. And it's this necessary evil to power the programs and services. And it's a means to an end. And I really believe like fundraising is the work. And I think that's what you were getting at with that statement. So talk to me a little bit about that. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, I think that we very much agree on this point, and you've probably said it a million times at this point in your podcast, but it is true that for me, I was lucky to be handed this article early on in my career, Fundraising and Organizing Sisters in the Struggle. And this must have been when I was starting out. I think my first fundraising job was 90, like my first full-time fundraising job must have been 98 or 99. I mean, I don't remember, but I got the article early on and it really set a path for me to understand what I was doing was important. And it doesn't take much. Again, it's my own experience. Whenever I've given a dollar somewhere, whenever I myself has decided to invest any amount of my money in a cause, there are reasons for it. Some of them might just be simply, I was asked and I know this person and it's my son's baseball team or whatever. And I, you know, there's obligation. But oftentimes I've been moved in some way. And if you've moved somebody, you've done so much more for your cause than anything else. But you have to consider to give a dollar, you have to think or to give 50 or whatever it is, is the amount that's significant for you. Whatever amount you've asked for that you have to think about it, you've done more to bring people to your cause than almost any other type of activity you do. And I guess that sometimes I run into, well, am I a mass mobilization organization? Am I actually trying to get a lot of people? In that case, I could definitely win any argument with you that's like, you have to have a small dollar program. You have to be organizing. You have to make every person you meet becomes a donor if you're in that world. But lately, I've been talking to organizations that aren't in that game. And so they wonder, does fundraising and organizing have to be together? And I say absolutely yes for the game I'm playing, where at the table, who's at the table with us? If I want the technologist in Silicon Valley to develop great tools that will save the environment and not harm communities of color who've always been harmed by environmental solutions, if I want them at the table, what better way than to have them invested in the work? And so I carry that even to the different corners of power that we're trying to bring together for solutions that we do. Any company that comes in for partnership, we also think of, well, does their marketing team want to do a marketing partnership? Whether they want to be an individual donor, do they have a foundation side? How else do they want to show they care about this cause besides just let's partner on this program? I think it has to be there. That's always been the case. You put the money there and blame capitalism or whatever, but it is true. That dollar that goes there makes you care more. And so I will always use it as an organizing strategy, whatever level of organization I'm in. I really agree. And I think money is one expression of our values. And so I think it exactly what you said, like when we invest in things, our focus is there. And so the fundraising sometimes is the first step or the first piece in people really investing in an issue area. Sometimes it's the only piece that's the capacity that they have to be involved in something they care about. And that's why I also think it's so important that we don't fall into those clickbaity, urgent fundraising strategies, because then we miss that bigger picture. And like, sure, maybe we like get a few bucks, but that's not the point, right? We haven't built that relationship. We haven't built that like integration, which made me think as you were talking about something really interesting, like one of the drivers of giving is identity, And that we see people like me do things like this, right? It's a Seth Godin quote that I love that I feel like really summarizes in a lot of ways, like how people give in relationship to their identity. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about the work that you do and sort of what I was asking about before in terms of your own personal sort of negotiation of working at bipartisan tables where maybe you don't fully identify with all of the people at the table, 
I'm curious, like how identity plays into your donor base, particularly at Dream, because my guess is you have a really diverse group of identities. And so is it that people are giving and investing, like when you were doing the criminal justice reform work around that bill that passed the first step bill, you know, was it that people who were investing in that work were all like you, like mission oriented with the incarcerated population in mind and sort of like trusting you to make every decision needed to get to that ultimate end goal? Or like, Did you deal with pushback from donors when you made concessions under the Trump administration because then they felt like pieces of their identity and why they were involved in the initiative in the first place weren't getting validated in the same way with the adjustments to the bill? Does that question make sense? I know it was a needy one. No, it makes (laughs) a lot of sense. And it's a really hard question because I do think that there are some donors who will never, ever donate to us who are big funders in the space and won't donate to us because of that, that we do the bipartisan work. And we've slowly won them over. Sometimes we'll get smaller grants, but we're in community with these people, right? The world of funding is, you know, there's the climate funders and the criminal justice, and you know those people, you're with them all the time. And relationships is important there too, that I think that we've also done some things where we're like, we don't care, we're doing it our way and just move forward, which isn't embody that kind of listen to spirit. So it goes both ways. The funders who have come along with us, and ideally, I would love to, just like every organization, would love to have thousands and thousands of small donors who believe in how we're doing our work. I mean, that's the dream. And so we'll keep moving towards that. But until that moment, I actually don't care why you've come to us necessarily as long as I'm staying true to myself. And the reason why I say that is that in order to get that bill passed, the one we're talking about, we needed three different parts of the Republican coalition to be on board to get that overwhelming bipartisan victory. So we had fiscal conservatives who they want to change the criminal justice system because taxpayer dollars are going to a system that doesn't work at all. It's a waste of money. They're not seeing good results. You had social conservatives the ones on the religious right and some other types of social conservatives that believe in redemption and second chances and are generally anti-death penalty. So they're coming at it for religious reasons. And you have libertarian right who don't like the government state. The prison represents everything wrong with overreach and large government. And so you had libertarians, fiscal conservatives, social conservatives. None of them came to us because of what I think is a racist, unjust system that treats people unfairly, right? But they came because together they knew we had a shot to make the change we wanted to see. And so money we got from those groups at the time, they didn't share our values, but they knew we're coming to it from our values. We'll be the ones on the left to be part of this bipartisan coalition. And so, yes, ideally, I'd rather have everyone that gives to us be the people who believe like we do. But there's so much value in having your donors know who you are, and they come from completely different world. We had money from Koch brothers during that time, and Koch Industries have been phenomenal on criminal justice issues, really, really leading the way in red states to major reform, and completely abysmal on climate, our other issue. And so how do you deal with that? Well, well unlikely to ever work with them on climate, but we'll keep. They've been great partners. We will keep working with them on criminal justice reform. That's hard to tell people. We take donations from the NFL. And during the height of the Kaepernick discussions, there was a lot of flack for that. But I thought this is the first corporation at this level making this amount of donation and social justice. And they called it a social justice fund. So no matter how bad they were and what they did, they were going to take a huge amount of money. And for the first time, they dedicated to social justice, a corporation that had never been done before. I said, sign me up. I'd love to be part of that learning. It is a little bit of a different take, but you know, you've probably had these arguments a bunch of times when folks are like, would you take it from this foundation or that foundation? Or I don't want to take government money. And you're just like, government money is taxpayer dollars. Like there's really no better amount of money to take. Or like, I'll take Ford Foundation. Where do you think the Ford Foundation money came from originally? Right? Like it's always a compromise. The only thing you can do is not compromise on who you are. And so that's the line, we, you know, when the NFL money came, I'm like, I'll test it. 
I'll say, hey, can we say Kaepernick is awesome? We stand behind him 100% tomorrow if we want to. They're like, yeah, then what's the problem? There's no kind of, right? So having those discussions, I think is really important. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I think it's a big conversation. And in my work, and even in my program, like I have a signature course called the Power Partners Formula. And one of the beginning lessons is around like a gift acceptance policy. And it's not like, here is your gift acceptance policy. It's like, here are the things to consider in deciding for your organization what that looks like. And I think what you're talking about here that I think is really interesting is a lot of awareness and transparency around who people are and what their stake is in the game and recognizing that incentives might be really different. And that's okay if the ultimate goal is the same for an issue, but you're not going to become indebted to, bound to, or in a relationship with them in a way that sort of gets out of control or becomes more than it was intended to be. I think what happens a lot of the times is like we see the dollars in the sector and we're just like, and we have a real relationship with the entity and it can blind us from holding true to ourselves to not have mission drift or to not make concessions in other places. And so there are some organizations that I think need a more maybe black and white gift acceptance policy, because once they start to enter into those types of relationships, they aren't as good at holding boundaries around like when the money starts to conflict with their values, or they could get into that relationship with the NFL. And then should the NFL say like, no, you cannot support Kaepernick, they would be like, okay, well, we've already committed to this partnership. So here we go, not doing the things we want to do, but our eye on the prize with the money. And so I think what makes to me when I hear you talk about sort of your frame of reference and the way you think about this is like, yeah, like you have the strength to stay true to yourself, even in relationships with partners that you have some alignment with and some misalignment with. And knowing that, I think, gives you an orientation to building those partnerships that's really different than what I see in a lot of places. Yeah, I really do think so. And because our theory of change involves working with people in places of power, like we very much believe that if you don't pull in Hollywood and culture, if you don't pull in Silicon Valley and tech, if you don't pull in Wall Street and finance, and then of especially DC is our kind of a big corner of power for us. If you don't bring in the power players from those places, your solution can't necessarily scale to the size we want it to scale. And so we have partners, for instance, Target has been one of our great partners. You can't really say that Target shares any of the same goals necessarily as dream.org. We're very different organizations. They're selling products and making money and we are changing hearts and minds and laws. But Target had an interest in making sure that they had better hiring practices and diversify, especially in Minneapolis. And we said, we can help you with that. We actually do our entire tech training program. And we've had a partnership with them for years. Being able to have that is just so important. And yeah, there's money that changes hands. And we are all getting better for that. We've learned a lot from being partners with them and vice versa. But I also want to say that there's a luxury you have by being more well-established, longer in your nonprofit journey, and having a different type of money that some of the smaller nonprofits, especially in that startup moment, don't have. And so, yeah, I say, I have this one person on my staff, when it might be a difficult conversation with a donor, I say, put Michelle on it. Because Michelle is the perfect person of hearing what they want to spend money on. And then in the same conversation by the end, telling them, no, it's a bad idea. Here's the better idea. And here's why you're even going to get more money for my idea. She's phenomenal at that. So whenever it might be that way, I say put Michelle on it. But a lot of organizations, and I would say that's the North Star, always sell your mission, stay true to your mission, stay true to who you are. But at the beginning, there is a moment when there's a little bit of this and that because you're trying to get your first set of fundings. And I do think that in a startup-y thing, if a foundation says, yeah, we'll give you money for that, but we really would love you to do that, 
sometimes you are going to say yes. And cause I need to get to that next place. That's hard. So I I've gone away from telling people don't ever have any mission creep. Sometimes there's a reason. Sometimes that'll build the relationship with the foundation who you will then take to the next level. And you will then tell them no and have them like it and move along in your strategy. I think it's a different game at startup time than when you're more established and can make some of those calls. Now, though, when I hear people say, maybe we can do that, I'm like, no, don't you dare say you're going to do anything that's not in our plan. Like, now I get to stop people where before I used to listen to, well, maybe we could, like, it just changes. I'm glad you said that. I think that's a huge conversation around like when and if and how you take opportunities that are tangential or like mission creep and at what investment levels and with what type of transparency or commitment to future partnership. I think that where I see those conversations like lead an organization really sideways is like one when it's like a $10,000 thing where they're asking for $100,000 in return essentially and there isn't transparency really around how much something costs to do because we've devalued our time and our staff's time so tremendously and also when we've then said, or we haven't been transparent about the fact that we hope this is the beginning of a longer term relationship. I mean, the amount of times I've seen organizations do that. And then the funder is like, we don't do multi-year funding, things like that. And they're like, oh my God, like we completely shape-shifted this thing last year to try. And so I think it's all about transparency saying like, we hear you and you're interested in that. That isn't what we had come to the table with this year. We're open to considering it, but let's talk about what this means for us as partners in the future. Like if this goes well, can we use this as a pilot to really think about X, Y, and Z? And I think just there's so much I see around like, okay, we're going to create this corporate partnership volunteer workday out of thin air, because then maybe they'll give us grant money later on. It's like, they don't even have a grant program. (laughs) Like that money is not coming. Yeah, totally. I mean, 100%. And I also feel like it takes a lot of experience in fundraising. And unfortunately, development departments throughout the nonprofit sector, development professionals don't last long. You know, it's two years here, two years there, two years there. You could have one set of experience, go somewhere else, have a completely different. It takes a long time to feel comfortable to have those conversations. It was like, you want us to do what? For what now? Like, are you serious? Oftentimes, I'll say it costs a whole staff person. Like, don't accept anything that doesn't also include money for an entire staff person, benefits and all, because it is, even if it fits in someone else's job, someone's managing it, someone's this, like, think of people. That's what it costs us, everything in nonprofits. And now that we're going through this tight economy and people are making the cuts, you know, the only cuts you make are personnel. So for me, it's like never worth it if it's not another, at least money for another person in general. But man, we have these conversations every day in our lives. Like if my kids are like, Hey, can I get a ride to school? I always tell them no, because I know I'm not going to drive them to school every day. So if one day there's a reason to, we have a full conversation about it. I'm like, okay, this is the exception. It's only for today. I need you to understand the impact on me. Like I can't do blah, blah, blah when I'm doing this. And then we do it that one time and they know not to ask me again or what we, we know how to have these conversations. You know, we have all of our feelings about money that when it becomes about money, we just can't have this talk and it's sad. And people like me, people like you, and that's why I got into fundraising in the first place. We were told we shouldn't talk about money. It's impolite. It's not a topic of conversation. Anyone that looked like me was not on the board of a nonprofit organization. I actually had one of my first jobs out of college. I was the field organizer for this organization. And so I went around the country organizing all the chapters and doing their protests. I was just community organizer field, you know, running around. It was pre-internet. So most of the organizing was on phone and running around. And it was an old organization. Most of the staff was mostly white. And there was this one woman of color on the board of directors. And she was talking to me about my trajectory. And someone had told me that the most powerful person at an organization is the development director after the president or whatever. And I was like, well, I want to be the development director. You know about fundraising. I want to be fundraising. And she's the one that told me it's not for people like me. I'm the out front organizing folks. Fundraising is. And what I heard was you're not a white guy who controls a room and demands money that other white guys with money will talk to. 
And I mean, back then you tell me no, and that I can't be, and it's not for me. Like that was a quick way to get me on the path to being a fundraiser. It got me there fast. And I took an opportunity out on the West coast when someone said they'd make me their development director with like no experience, just because actually about who I looked, they wanted to diversify their staff, brought me out and trained me. And I got all of the skills and I never looked back. I still present young. I have a little bit of a style that is very casual and that is who I am. And guess what? I deserve to be in that room talking about money and I will. And you let me talk for a while, you will know, I know what I'm talking about, right? Like, so there is a part of that that I think is really important around identity and fundraising to hang on to. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's also such an important piece of recognizing that if you're uncomfortable fundraising, that makes sense because we have been told for generations, women identifying people in particular, that it's inappropriate to talk about money. And biologically, we are programmed to create harmony in community. And if we feel like we're doing anything that is disrupting harmony or displeasing people in those ways, it makes perfect sense that our bodies and our nervous systems are like, wait, 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 you might not be safe over here. And so I think I thought for a long time that because I felt that way fundraising, I must be a bad fundraiser. And it really took me like understanding that like, no, there's a lot of programming inside of me that is misfiring in these moments. And so like, just for folks who are listening to this, who are like, I didn't feel as confident fundraising. That's okay. That's how most people feel. And even me who has asked for millions of dollars, millions of times, I still get butterflies in my belly, you know, before those words come out of my mouth. And like, that's okay. It's like, okay, here you are doing something big, doing something risky, putting yourself out there, being visible, all of those things. But I love that folks have leaders like you to look to and look up to and watch you take up space in the room, the space you deserve so that more and more and more people get to see and realize and breathe into the space they deserve to take up too. So thank you for sharing that. I know we're almost out of time. Where can folks go to learn more about you? They should definitely go check out dream.org and any kind of final words you want to leave folks with today. Definitely dream.org. I also have nishaanon.org, which is my name spelled out. And I think that I wish as a young fundraiser, I took more risks. I wish that People told me I could do all the things I didn't do, kind of play a bigger game. It took me a while to look back and realize I was playing small when I started out. There's nothing small about it. It only takes, I live now out here in Berkeley, very close to Silicon Valley, where if you've been in a pitch competition or you've seen these kind of pitches that get funded in the millions and millions of dollars of range, it doesn't take long to be like, what? I've got a better product than that. I know how to sell my product better than that. Like I'm going to save the world. And that's when I realized like, oh, we know how to do this. And a little bit of that goes a long way. So I don't know if that's what I wanted to leave with everyone today, but I really appreciate having this conversation and talking about just the different things that go through my head and putting all the things together, kind of growing up as a fundraiser, for most of my life and then being out of it for the last few years, I haven't realized how much it still is like a big piece of how I think about our theory of change and organizing. Yeah, I love it. And I'm so grateful for everything that you shared around the nuance of mobilization to the nuance of fundraising to how that gets to show up in you as the fundraiser. So thank you for all of your wisdom and insight that you shared with all of us today. Thank you. Great talking. Okay, there was a lot in this episode, and my guess is that not everyone agrees with everything discussed, but I love the way that Nisha thinks about building partnerships and coalitions. It really challenges the way I think about identity building inside organizations and what it looks like to create more inclusive spaces to achieve particular tangible goals. I'm particularly thinking about three things that we talked about. One, building coalitions with different values. So creating coalitions with different values is a crucial step towards crafting broader, more inclusive solutions. When organizations collaborate with groups that don't necessarily align perfectly with their own views, 
they can still find common ground and work together towards achieving shared objectives. Such coalitions can offer a rich exchange of ideas, enabling each member to grow and arrive at comprehensive solutions. But this is not always easy and it doesn't make everyone happy. Number two, I really loved learning about this idea of equitable progress achieved through radical inclusivity. She mentions how Dream.org's core principle is radical inclusivity, which has helped them achieve multifaceted sustainability and growth in less polarized ways. They believe in striving for progress without suppressing others' voice, thereby benefiting everyone involved. Nisha showcases their practice of including all viewpoints, even when drafting legislation, ensuring a non-confrontational collaborative approach that delivers effective, enduring solutions. And it is really different from most of what we see out there. Number three, the importance of a mission first mentality. So in any organization, keeping the mission at the core is the driving force for directed growth and effectiveness. A mission-first mentality encourages individuals and organizations to view tasks, opportunities, and challenges through the lens of their overarching mission, ensuring that all of the actions align with the bigger goal. It helps maintain the organization's authenticity and integrity throughout its functions. And I love the way that she talks about this in terms of the First Step Act, which allowed for approximately 200,000 prisoners released, emphasizing how she prioritized the mission, even amidst resistance from both of the political left and right. She underscores in our conversation, which I really appreciated, that leaders should consistently and constantly remind themselves of who they serve and their fight's purpose. And that's gonna help them secure their course even under challenging circumstances. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Nisha and our amazing sponsors, Bloomerang, Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.